You have to arm yourself with knowledge and you have to arm yourself with questions. So I was done with my period for over a year and then my daughter got her period and then I started having periods again. What's that about? We're using these terms perimenopause, menopause, postmenopausal. Um, I don't understand the difference. Um, and then if you could break down the characteristics of menopause, if that's synonymous with being postmenopausal, per decade, because it never stops, right? My question is about vaginal dryness and if it's the same as vaginal atrophy. I've read that genetic testing can indicate if you're someone who's more likely to get cancer as a result of estrogen replacement. What's your opinion about that? I have like arthritic pain and I wondered if that is a symptom. What are some of the upsides of menopause? You know, menopause should not derail women at all. We have many years to go, many quality years ahead of us. So there's things you can do. Don't let it hold you hostage. Don't let it shut down your bedroom. Don't let it affect your relationships or your aging and you know, embrace it, love it. Because there's things that can be done for quality life. The model of live podcasts was started for me about 12 years ago in San Francisco. I had a show called Get Smart Radio. The last show for that was in Los Angeles in 2009. And the title of that was Bloodthirsty Women in Their Cycles. And it was truly, who was there? Raise your hand. Yeah. It was truly uh, well attended. People had an incredible response. And I sat there thinking to myself, there, there's, a, there's something here. And that was 10 years ago. Everyone can Google and everyone can get too much information and that's isolating. What our crisis is, is not enough critical thinking around the information that is out there. So this series is a, kind of designed to get rid of the crap and bring in the light. And to do that for our first episode is Dr. Sherry Ross. Come on up from the stage here. Brought you a gift. <laughs> Usually the conversation in women's health for me starts when a woman's legs are up in stirrups. That's the true conversation. But today we're gonna pretend we're all in stirrups, okay? But Whoa. this is uh, uh, the vagina revolution. It's somewhat my tagline because the need is so important. And I appreciate Deborah uh, having me as her first guest. So, thanks for having Should me. Should I put it on right now? Yeah. No. <laughs> Because you know I would. <laughs> Dr. Sherry, my first question to you. I'm so excited to look at you now. Oh, all I saw was Instagram and Facebook and all the social media things, and now I get to see you um, in person. So the first question, I have to read it because of the quote, and I want you to respond because it's driving me nuts. This is the big quote that really um, fomented my conviction that pause has to happen and we have to do this, and it has to be in Los Angeles because we know how to tell stories, and we're gonna kick ass around the country, and it starts today, March 3rd. And here's the question. I'm gonna read you a quote, and you're gonna respond to it and tell us why this is true. Okay. Just 20% of OBGYN residency programs today provide any kind of menopause training, and 80% of medical residents admit that they feel barely comfortable discussing or treating menopause. 
And this is a Johns Hopkins study, and it was published January in 2019 in Forbes magazine. Well, it doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, in medical school, there's so many areas that are not discussed. Menopause, nutrition, uh, sexual health, how to converse with patients, how to have a conversation. There's just, it, it, the list goes on of they're doing a huge disservice, and I think it's changing a little bit, but it doesn't surprise me because it's kind of an awkward conversation, too, to have because, one, you're dealing with a lot of sexual issues, physical issues, emotional issues, and those are touchy, touchy subjects, especially for, if you think about it, these are young adults in their 20s. Right? They don't, these are hard things to even really conceptualize. It's not like diabetes or high blood pressure or having an arrhythmia with your heart. That's much more tangible. And what women go through in menopause, it's life changing and there's so many components to it. And I think it's hard for doctors to, to really conceptualize it. Even currently, I think it's hard for your average OBGYN to, to talk the talk of menopause. And I think that's why a lot of people are here today. There's a lot of disservice around it. So I could see a dentist having trouble talking about this because it's not their field, it's uncomfortable, they don't look at vaginas all day. For an OBGYN person to still feel a discomfort, it, it, it sounds, it sounds ups it's upsetting and it sounds mm -hmm. kind of nuts. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, the average time a patient is with a doctor is seven and a half minutes. So for an OBGYN, it, it's, you having any problems? How's your period? Okay, scooch down. And unless you speak up, and unless you can really identify the transformation of menopause, because a lot of people don't even realize it's, it's related to your hormones. Like, stuff is happening, and you're not sure why. You know, you get the period changes, you might even get the hot flashes, but what about the depression, or the crying, or the heart palpitations, or the you know, fatigue, you're not always associating those symptoms with menopause. It's confusing. So I think it, there's, there's a lot of disconnect. And because it's so complicated, doctors in our very broken medical system, they aren't spending the time to have the conversation. So what makes you different? What makes you part of the 20% that are totally comfortable, not only talking about it, but maybe bringing it out in somebody, asking the right questions and saying, you know, you're, you're, you're 48 years old, what's going on? Do you feel like you have any, any symptoms that are unusual to you? Like, you're proactive. Yeah. It's the art of conversation. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I know in your 40s, most women are going through perimenopause. Things are happening, you're not feeling right, you're tired, and, and of course it's the same decade that a lot of women are having life, major life crisis. Their kids might be going off to college, you know, their partner's having an affair, they're having financial issues. There's, it's very complicated decade. And then you do the blood test, your doctor's like, hey, everything's normal, you're normal. And you're thinking, I don't feel good. I'm, uh, something is off, but you're not getting validated. So it takes the art of conversation for the doctor to want to have that conversation to bring it out in women. And then menopause, it's a continuation. And, and that's another hard decade. So you have a lot of life stresses happening. And unless your doctor brings it up, you're not really sure where to begin. Why does Forbes publish an article about this? What's the motivation of a, of a major media outlet 
taking the Johns Hopkins study, making us aware of it, like what's the, what's the end game? I, th I think what you take from this information is, again, you have to be your best advocate. Everyone has to be their best health advocate. We hate when patients go to Dr. Google, but that starts the conversation. You know, the woman comes in and she's like, you know, I Googled, you know, sweats. And then you, you see, you know, 20 things happening. Uh, you can research it, you bring it to your doctor. So you have to take the initiative. You have to ask those questions. You know, why is this happening? Something's different. And, and, and also I really think there are some great sites out there that you can go to. Big fan of Mayo Clinic. WebMD isn't bad either. It's not the greatest, but it's, it's something that's at least reliable, has good, accurate information. I would stay clear of chat rooms because it tends to be more confusing. But I do think women have to be their best health advocate. No one should be punished because they're an introvert. And they shouldn't be misdiagnosed because they're an introvert. And if their ecosystem they're living in is, is a shaming one, then um, we, we just watched that a beautiful film, um, Period, End of Sentence, that won the documentary. And it just shows the shame of having your period, let alone exactly. the, the, the shame of, of, of being isolated as an irrelevant older person. Yeah. Aging is hard. It's hard for women, especially in this town. Um, I think menopause is so symbolic from a feminine sense. It's an aging stigma, um, not having your period, not being fertile. I just think it's a tough time. And, and you really need a healthcare provider that's sensitive to it, that you feel is listening to you, that's guiding you. Because it's, it's not easy. Your BFF is probably equally confused. I mean, you have been voted like superwoman in this town. People love you because you are an exceptional communicator. You make people feel good. I will spread my legs in front of you anytime. I think it's, it's super, super easy. But for most people, you know, Columbia University is one of the two schools in the country that teaches something called narrative medicine. Um, and that gives you two years of learning how to use story to elicit great understanding of someone's condition. So if you want to look up narrative medicine, it's critical. It should be it should be required for all doctors, but it's not. When you read about menopause, always in these articles, there's a sentence that says something like this. Oh, it's different for everyone. Does that sentence allow for the lack of research and the lack of, of attention because we're so different? So to, that's a rhetorical question. So the question really is, are there common symptoms that we can all agree on that we can demand more research and, and impact in, and, and normalizing it into the regular conversations? Well, it's true that everyone will have a different journey in menopause. Very, very few people go unscathed that don't notice anything. But I think what heads the list, first of all, how many of you are over 40 here? Raise your hand. Over 50? 60? 70? My mom, my mom's here. So I think the, the, the real sort of top three or four symptoms that most women will experience, you know, irregular periods, hot flashes of some sort, um, night sweats, which is sort of a hot flash at night, which can affect your sleep, which can create insomnia. Mood changes should be on that list too. 
the varying degrees, it, it just depends, again. You know, what are you coming into the picture with? A lot of women have depression, up to 80%. So if you're going into menopause with that history and anxiety, everything gets a little more exacerbated. Um, these are called vasomotor symptoms, the hot flashes, the night sweats. With that, there's heart palpitations, bloating, uh, weight gain, water retention, uh, worsening of ADD symptoms, so concentration. You know, a lot of these you may not have daily, but it does to some extent happen in this hormonal nightmare of menopause and, and perimenopause. So the 40-year-old, I, I like to speak of them together because they're two separate hormonal cycles. I refer to them as hormonal cycles because they're inevitable. Not everyone has it to the degree you know, that your neighbor might have it or your mother or your best friend, but they're, it's, it's transforming what's happening to your, to your soul in a lot of ways. Like you know something's off. Perimenopause, perimenopause can go on for up to 10 years. All those symptoms that we talked about. When your period stops for a year, your ovaries stop producing that hormone estrogen. And also testosterone, which is a sex hormone, so your libido's going down. I mean, who feels like having sex anyway when you're having all those other sy symptoms? But that's a little bit of a later menopausal symptom. So all these together are happening. Menopause is just takes no prisoners. It's so hard for women. If a CEO of a major company who's a guy is having any of those symptoms, his company will tank because he would have all this stuff going on and he would say, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna tough it out, I must be dying. Sure. And, but women have an attitude of let's tough it out. More in some cultures than others and it's why people get misdiagnosed during that time period. Um, can you speak a little bit to the danger of toughing it out? Well, certainly. I mean, this affects every aspect of a woman's life. It affects your family life, you know, how you talk to your partner, how do you talk to your children, how do you talk to your coworker. But also, it, it can affect your energy. If you're not sleeping well, hot flashes can really disrupt your sleep cycle. And then it affects your job. For some, not all, but for many. And this is where we talk about treatment options because it's so debilitating. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way because there are remedies that are, some are folkloric, some are very Western. So I mean, I, I think, you know, we always like to start with natural remedies. You know, why not? If, if, if you can treat your mild hot flashes where you're not undressing in the streets with acupuncture or diet, you know, or things of Dr. Weiss's herbs um, or supplements that many supplements work really well. Black cohosh is, is not bad. Passionflower extract is a great one. Ashwagandha, you know, royal jelly, chromium, uh, St. John's wort, there's many that work and have pretty decent studies to show they work. Right. Um, so we always start basic, you know, try those, see if it helps. So I happen to have a, a doctor who uh, doesn't have any of those words in her vocabulary. All she has is the HRT or no HRT. There's no, uh, there's no gray, uh, there's just like, yes you do it or no you do it. Is, you see a trend of people embracing what you're saying more or is it more just a, a left coast well, thing? You know, this is even a bigger conversation because 
Western doctors, we're not trained to talk about alternatives. We're really not. I mean, doctors are very sort of, they want to know what randomized, double-blinded study showed that medication works. And we'd like to think that there's more conversation for embracing Eastern medicine, for talking about alternatives, to really focus on diet, nutrition, uh, exercise, antioxidants, things that can work. They, they definitely have a place. And I think women want those options. If your doctor's not having them, I think it's important to find someone that you can talk about alternatives. So you went with hot flashes. So you're, you gave me some ideas, and I'm, I'm like, thank you, I'm gonna go do that. And I wrote down a bunch of stuff. How do I measure the success of what I just did? Like, I've done, I did that stuff. I did a yeah. lot, I put yams on my face, and it was awesome. Yeah. What's the? Yeah, so usually I tell women, I say, look, let's, let's try some of these alternative natural methods for the three months. You have to give it at least three months. And if three months passes and you're, nothing is changing, you know, come back and see me or call me or email me. Let's talk about really if it's helping a little bit or not at all. And sometimes they'll call back sooner, you know, definitely. Especially if the emotional component is kind of leading the way. Because I think that's the most disruptive. It's, again, you have to be pretty in tune with yourself, right? You have to write things down. I'm a big fan of journaling your symptoms, writing things down. There's some great apps. Uh, the North American Society of Menopause, NAMS, uh, is actually uh, one of sort of our mothership of dis dispensing information for menopause. They have a great app. It's free. I think it's helpful. Great. You know, you write down whatever symptom is not normal, what's new, what's bothering you, what's disruptive, what's life-changing, and you take notes. Are there any, uh, in your career, are there any like surefire, like trigger, this is gonna make you feel better? Like, is it besides like a, a hormone replacement, which we'll talk about in a second. You know, it's all about feeling good about yourself. And for women, because we're complicated that way, you know, I think if you get on a good exercise regimen, that can make women feel better. Yeah. For whatever reason, you know, you're, you're doing something that's a little bit of a gift to yourself. You know, we recommend exercising 150 minutes a week in general. It's good for heart health. I mean, that's another issue for women over 50. But when you exercise, you feel better. When you're eating better, when you're eating plant-based fruits and vegetables and whole grains and maybe having more antioxidants, you kind of feel better. Right. You're not thinking about so much what menopause is doing to you. So I do think for the mild symptoms, I would focus on kind of those lifestyle right. perks. Well, see, the, and we're in Los Angeles and we're privileged enough to have the ecosystem support us. There's a vibe here of like get up and go and do those things. And, and again, it's so interesting that um, it, takes a, it takes a village to get you to feel that way as well. You know, and those disruptors in life, those endocrine disruptors, the, the lifestyle disruptors, you know, alcohol, caffeine, it could be sugar, soy, dairy, gluten, right? So collectively, when you're really putting your best healthy foot forward and, and cutting back on some of those endocrine disruptors, exercising regularly, eating better, you kind of feel better. I think women cannot stand bloating and weight gain. 
Like you could almost push through the hot flashes, mm -hmm. but do not make me bloat, you know, and do not make me retain water and don't make me gain weight. So I think when you're doing some of these healthy uh, activities, they really do stabilize your hormones as well. Certainly stabilize your emotional health. I really want to talk about the, the hormone, the word, what's, what's bioidentical, what's natural, what's, and again, I'm your patient, I'm sitting here, I've, I've tried the cohosh, it didn't work, I, I'm coming back in three months, I'm feeling like crap, I'm not, my vitality's gone, dry vag, the whole thing, like I just want to die, and I'm with you, and you're calming me down, taking deep breaths, and you talk to me about hormones. Time for hormones, yeah. Everyone's confused. Patients, doctors, your BFF, everyone's confused about hormone replacement therapy, but I'm here to tell you, and I wanna cut that confusion out of your mind because hormone replacement therapy is safe if the, you know, your symptoms are that bad and that disruptive, you know, the benefits will definitely outweigh the risks, at least for the first decade once you've been diagnosed. So the uh, American uh, society, the NAMS we were talking about, National Menopause Society, who is that mothership, reassures us that if you're low risk, you don't have a strong family history of breast cancer, you don't have any uh, issues so much with blood clots, and you're suffering, you're stripping down on sunset, <laughs> you can try hormone replacement therapy. That's hormones, like what's bioidentical yeah. versus so, hormones. So the prescription that I'm going to write you, the, the Western doctor, you know, is going to be some sort of estradiol and progesterone if you have a uterus. And the only reason you take progesterone is because you have a uterus. If you just took estrogen alone, you would bleed heavily possibly and it would increase your risk for precancer of the uterus. But progesterone also helps you sleep at night. So take it at night if you're taking it. But hormone replacement therapy that the Western doctor is gonna write is gonna be that, that estrogen progesterone. So if you're just taking the estrogen cream, what's it called, estrogen? So estrogen comes in different. What's the cream, is that, that doesn't have progesterone? Well, there's different, there, no, it's estrogen. So there's cream format, which ideally you wanna take something that's gonna bypass the liver. You don't wanna take it orally. So there's the patch, there's a cream, a gel, and they're different you know, manufacturers that you can use. And, and they're, again, very safe. If you are getting sort of the 0 0.5 is the average dose, sometimes we'll start you on something half strength and say, hey, let's, Deborah, try it for a month. Because some people do better and do fine on a half strength dose, 0 0.05 or 0 0.25. Let's say the cream, you rub on your arm before you go to bed. You take 100 milligrams of progesterone, you do that for a month. It takes about a month to, to sort of get into your system. You might have a little spotting, a little bleeding, breast tenderness, some bloating, but you're gonna feel better. You're gonna feel better. Now, what I would say about bioidentical hormones that you get at a compounded pharmacy, they're plant-based, they're made of soy, they're natural to some extent, but they're not, no clinical trials, they're not FDA approved. Will they help with your symptoms? Yes, they will. But they're not any safer. And that's so important to know. They're not gonna be less likely to give you breast cancer. So don't be fooled. They're often not covered by insurance. But you know, in our world, natural somehow seems healthier. And that's not always the case.
I want to hear from you. Strip down. You're among friends. Talk about the thing that's just driving you nuts right now. That's making you, from whether from a perspective of a, of a, just a woman in the world versus a doctor, um, I need a rant from you because I know I could tell you are you have an amazing book out. You have an incredible practice. You must have a lot of feelings around the fact that we're even having this conversation. Yeah. I, I'm more upset that women aren't getting the information out there at all, especially as it relates to sexual health. You know, you still like your partner. You still want to have sex. But who's asking you about it? You know, your doctor rarely will ask you, are you having any problems with intercourse? Are you having problems with orgasm? This is a topic that is so not discussed amongst with women and, their, and the doctors at all. And I think it's a shame because there are treatment remedies out there for you. There are treatments. A lot of women are not having vaginal penetration at all because it's too painful. Or they're having birthday sex, anniversary sex, and it's horrible. When Viagra came out as the big solution for erectile dysfunction, and the, port, the ship was coming into the port, and there was no water there, and they ran aground, what was going on in the medical industry? Yeah. What were they saying to these poor women well, coming in saying, my husband's, you know, well, already? The, yeah. No, male doctors are high-fiving each other, but, you know, Viagra to a menopause vagina is horrible. It's horrible. You know, and we, what do we do? We sort of, we, we just fight through it. We push through it. But what we're doing now in this conversation of sexual health, because your libido is shot, right? No estrogen, not much testosterone around. You, it's hard, and, and we are more mental, right, With, than sort of in the bedroom. We're mental. We're like, oh, this is going to hurt. I, got, I just got to push through it. I want my partner, my husband to go somewhere else, right? And he's taking his blue pill, strutting in the bedroom, and you're just mortified. And you're just like, hurry up. You know, get it done. Because it's harder to have an orgasm. There's less blood flow, right, to the vagina, to the clitoris. So it's harder. Everything's harder. So if you're not having penetration, even, you know, whether monthly or every couple months, the vagina closes down. It collapses a little bit. And what are we doing for it? And I talk about vi vaginal dilation. I have dilators I give women. I have a vibrator that I give women to help them. I mean, it's like your new normal. You need to figure it out. Why'd you give me a t-shirt first? <laughs> I could have gotten a vibrator. I'll mail you one. Next time. But this, this is the conversation. Yeah. You know, so, but the doctor has to lead it. You know, they did a, they've done a lot of studies on, you look at 20%, can't even talk about menopause. Well, even less are talking about sexual health. This is, these are taboo subjects. You know, sexual health, menopause, loss of urine. I mean, it's just, menopause has to be embraced. It's, women are living longer. We're living to 81 now. So I'm pissed that we aren't talking about how can we make quality of life for women over 50 improved. This is such a huge conversation, and we're at the tip of it. If we can do Me Too, we need to do pause. We need to talk about what do I do if I'm bleeding heavily? Don't, don't punish me. Don't make me sit in this, in this conference room. And if I'm going through menopause and, and my doctor is not bringing me out and giving me all the stuff, I need time. From the political perspective, which I'm, we're, we're going to have a show just on the politics of this, um, so get ready. What's your, what's your, what's your high-level thinking around that? Yeah, and you have to arm yourself with knowledge, and you have to arm yourself with questions. You cannot 
you cannot just take it as normal. Your new normal, there's, there's hope for you. There's things you can do about it. If you're not getting it from the doctors that you're seeing, you have to find someone else. Talk to your friends. Go on Yelp. Look around. I mean, we are judged all the time. Find someone that's going to listen to you because you don't have to suffer in menopause. There's many things you can do. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to now bring up a uh, wonderful storyteller who's sharing her story with us. We're so At this point in the live pod blast, we had a story from Andine Landa Abramson. You can hear that at the end of this recorded podcast. And now we'll continue with the audience questions that were asked after the interview with Dr. Sherry Ross. Does the timing of starting any type of hormonal or natural remedy treatment matter? For someone like me, I haven't taken anything. Hearing you talk makes me think maybe I could. And um, through menopause, does that timing matter for anything? No, I mean, it doesn't really. Um, So much depends on what your symptom is. So when you sort of... I'd like to say you don't really go through menopause, you're sort of in it, but you're not as symptomatic because the, the symptoms that happen later are going to be vaginal dryness and loss of urine, drier skin. Um, those are things that women often come back to me and say, hey, I, you know, I'm having painful intercourse or I'm losing urine when I cough, sneeze, and you know, even walk now. So we do use estrogen vaginally. Um, We also use different natural remedies just to keep the area moist. So hyaluronic acid in the vagina works really well. Vagicil has a great moisturizer because it does help uh, give some moisture to the vagina and also can sometimes help with loss of urine. I, I love kegels. I mean, that's one thing we should all be doing. We should all do a set of 10 right now as we're sitting here because it, it, our pelvic floor really takes a beating as we age. Even if you haven't had kids or you're, you haven't had chronic coughing or constipation, the muscles get weaker. So the Kegel exercise helps support the bladder, especially as we move into menopause and loss of urine. So there's really no time limit. It's all about what symptoms are disruptive. The next one's a little embarrassing, but my kids are appalled. Um, is gassiness a symptom of menopause? Don't be embarrassed because we all, we all have that problem. So gas, uh, bloating, gas, I mean, I think that is a kind of comes with age. Uh, it's not even so much with menopause as it's aging and, and talking about things in our diet that, that really promote gas. Some of these endocrine disruptors I was talking about, you know, dairy um, can be really hard on our system. Uh, Gluten, sugar, soy products can also cause us to be gassy. Probiotics are great for that. I think it's going to be diet controlled, eliminating those adverse disruptors. um, And you can help with the gas. But it is, it's a bit of a rite of passage for many of us as we age. Passage. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, you do. I've read that genetic testing can indicate if you're someone who's more likely to get cancer as a result of estrogen replacement. What's your opinion about that? So that's a good question. Um, You know, genetic indications for getting uh, tested for the BR1 and 2 
Um, tumor marker really depends on your genetic family history. Um, anyone under 50 that's had a you know, first degree relative that's had breast cancer, you should be tested. Um, that's one of the main indications. Now, usually your risk for breast cancer is one in a thousand. And over 60, it becomes two in a thousand. You know, a lot of us are, you know, if you're going to start hormone replacement therapy, you should definitely be getting yearly mammograms. If you have a breast cancer present that's estrogen sensitive, certainly that might cause it to grow. But to your question specifically, I'm not aware that, that it's going to pre, you know, uh, give you information to get genetic tested if you can get a cancer related to estrogen hormone replacement therapy. That answer your question? Okay. Um, my question is about vaginal dryness and if it's the same as vaginal atrophy. Yes, yes it is. So, so vaginal atrophy is a medical term to what happens to the vagina in menopause. With time, estrogen, and the lack thereof, those nice pink, fluffy, you know, lips of the vagina and the entrance and really what I can see through a speculum becomes very pale and dry. We call it vaginal dryness. Medically, it's atrophy. And this is a progressive, unfortunately, a progressive change of the vagina. So for women who enjoy their partner and they want to have, whether it's penetration with the penis or fingers or whatever your choice is, you will notice two things. One, it's less comfortable, more painful, and you just don't get as wet as you used to. And so you can do things, and it's not always about estrogen estrogen vaginally. You don't need the oral uh, version. You can use estrogen vaginally a couple times a week, or you can use a, a, a moisturizer. Do you, need progesterone? do you need progesterone with the estrogen vaginally? No, you do not. And the studies show for the vaginal estrogen, there's zero risk of breast cancer. Zero. So you should not be afraid of using vaginal estrogen um, if you have dryness. Tea tree oil. What about uterine cancer? Oh, no, no increased risk. I'm a big, big fan of extra virgin coconut oil. It is the greatest lubricant for sex. Uh, your partners like it as well. It feels really good. You can use it inside, put it on a penis. It, it, no increased risk of yeast infections. I personally recommend women um, using extra virgin coconut oil uh, in a bath of warm water two or three times a week. It is great for your skin as it relates to menopause and dryness. Great for the outer uh, labia on the vagina. Um, some women I even suggest use it, putting it uh, an ice cube form on the small, not the big ice cubes, but the smaller sizes and you can put it uh, inside the vagina. You know you're gonna have sex that night, you're going out to dinner, you can insert it uh, in the hard form. I know. That is so clever. It's good. So, <laughs> wow. If you go to a Thai restaurant, you could just get a little up. If, you, if your food is dry, you could just put it on. The I, I, it's the best. Extra virgin coconut oil, it's the best. Well, so my question was about S-string. S-string. Yeah. So S-string's great. Uh, S-string, so there's different types of vaginal estrogens, different um, way it's dispensed or how it's absorbed in your body. The S-ring is a little ring, it's a little donut, that it's very small like a diaphragm, in it, but it's flat. And you leave it in for 12 weeks. We actually recommend it for our breast cancer patients too. Um, you can use that, you can use a little tablet called um, Vagifem or Estrays, 
which is through an applicator twice a week, small amount, 100% safe. It's, it's kind of like watering the grass. It helps give the vagina a little more life. What? Uh, and sorry, to follow up on that, and is it safe to use ongoing for? Ever. Really? Forever, okay. forever, yeah. Oh. I don't know if there's any breast cancer patients here, but this is a group that I, I feel especially uh, sensitive to because they are really, uh, when it comes to treatment and what happens to the ovaries, I mean, they're, they're even, you know, less of that conversation is being had with this group of women. And 13% of oncologists bring it up to their patients. And I see it, especially women under 50, you know, you're, they're just lucky to be alive, so they're not really thinking about their sexual health, but I just really have a special sensitivity to that group of women and as their hormonal journey uh, takes place and how hard it can be. Um, so I think Andine had touched upon some of this, but what are some of the upsides of menopause? Well, you know, I think women start to just embrace their aging process and they're, they, they own it better, and they're less concerned about, th about more superficial things, um, like our appearance, sort of being perfect anymore. We're like, you know, we don't really care about that as much. We're more confident in our choices, and we're more like, I don't care anymore. Like, I'm gonna be myself, I'm gonna live my own life. Um, so I think it's a maturity time. And I think it's just getting to know your body better. You know, we're, we're, I like to think in this vagina revolution that I'm promoting, I mean, I'm hoping the younger generations, you know, the young women that I take care of, when I talk about their vagina and about, you know, their, their sexual health, it, they're much more upfront about it than our generations. Yeah. So I'm hoping that there's a movement to embracing our bodies, everything about it. And so hopefully these gatherings won't feel, you know, as sort of, not as commonplace. I want to dovetail onto that and just say that the the confidence that some people feel when they're through what Adine spoke of, you know, there's a freedom obviously that people feel, but it has to not just be internal. I think it has to be external as well and reinforced, and that's part of what you speak of. There has to be more of a trend of of if, if you're feeling good as a menopausal or postmenopausal woman, step up and be loud about it because you're, you're a beacon of hope for a lot of people. It's taboo to be taboo these days. Like everything should be on the floor, out there on, the, on YouTube and on the airwaves, but you know, it's still taboo to talk about getting older and menopause and it's just interesting that the gathering here today, it's a little beautiful moment when we could say people will get out of their cars and walk up into a space where they know they're outing themselves as interested maybe in thinking about how do I feel as a woman who's, who's aging. So I think it's a beautiful moment in our history that we can get in a room and talk about this. Uh, here's a question for me actually. Speaking of vaginal issues post-menopause, what are your thoughts on the Mona Lisa procedure yeah. and explain? Yeah, Mona, Mona is the best friend of many women. Um, so basically it's, it's a laser that, you know, if you think about your face and how the laser treatments remove that first layer of skin that's sort of dead and and then you laser it, it brings about uh, increase of blood flow and collagen production. Well, Mona does the same thing inside the vagina. And it's better to do it closer to menopause, I think. It's not FDA approved yet, but I do think it's, it's an option for women uh, who don't wanna be on estrogen, who don't wanna have to be a slave to different products vaginally. It, do, it does help. Um, it's a little bit costly to do it. It's three sessions, six weeks apart. 
So it's it's a basically it's a cir- uh, cylinder probe that's about probably about five inches in length. Um, it's like a penis in in girth, and it, it, there's different sizes too. If, if you're not having you know penetration with the penis, and you basically use a laser, a CO2 laser inside the vagina, in a circular motion all the way through the canal, and also on the outside, and it removes the dead layers from atrophy, and it brings on blood flow and collagen production. I, I think breast cancer patients, this should be part of their treatment because there are, again, it's, it's a group of people that I just feel like, you know, their sexual health suffers at even a younger age, and I just wish that insurance companies paid for it or, or oncologists had the conversations. We're using these terms perimenopause, menopause, postmenopausal. Um, I don't understand the difference. Sure. Um, and then if you could break down the characteristics of menopause, if that's synonymous with being postmenopausal mm-hmm. per decade, because it never stops, right? Right. No, you're right. It's a great question. Thank you. So perimenopause is really not talked enough about, more so than menopause. And it's really the the time before menopause. And it can be, you know, a month or 10 years before menopause. And if you know menopause, the average age is 51, it could be your 40s. So it's a hormonal imbalance time. The, er- the ovaries are not producing estrogen regularly. They're, they're more erratic. So that is the perimenopausal hormonal cycle. And then some women are suffered more so than others. And then menopause at 51 on average, uh, your periods stop altogether. Estrogen shuts down, the ovaries are done. Surgically, like Nadine, her ovaries were removed. Or Adine, yeah. sorry. You know, you, that's dramatic. That's hard. Um, but it's, that's much more final. There's a blood test we can do for that. We, we can tell you definitively you are in menopause. You know, it is post-menopause, I suppose. It's all, to me, synonymous for menopause. After 51, you are in menopause. You, you don't go through it, you're in it. It's not a phase. You, you can, you'll be, I have women in their 80s still taking estrogen for hot flashes. So it just depends, and everyone is different and how disruptive it is. But, but it is post-menopausal. It's the same word in a way, but you're in that second part of your life. Well, the, the only reason for decade is is to uh, is for hormone replacement therapy. It's that ten year rule that we say you can be on hormone replacement therapy the first decade following the first diagnosis of menopause. Then you don't have to stop, but the, you know if, if your risk over fifty is one in a thousand, right? Well, the second half, ten years on hormone replacement therapy, now your risk goes to two in a thousand. Well, for many women, they're like, yeah, I'm gonna take that risk, because I feel horrible off hormone replacement therapy. So it all goes back to quality of life and what all of us deserve. You know, embrace menopause, embrace that, you know, you wanna feel good about this next time of your life. Please talk more about the vagina shutting down during this decade if we don't have intercourse and how often we need to address this with a vibrator. I'm all for vibrators. You can address that issue as often as you like. Uh, You know, I I mean, listen, I think it's, 
dep- the collapsed vagina to me is a couple different ways. It doesn't necessarily mean you have a steady partner, a male partner, you're having you know, weekly intercourse or once a month intercourse or every two or three months intercourse. If you're uh, not on estrogen, the vagina starts to shrink a little bit. Elasticity, right? That's the tissue is very elastic. Well, estrogen affects the elasticity of our, our skin. You notice your skin wrinkles more, um, <clears throat> sags more, breast tissue sags more. So the vagina does shrink a little bit if nothing's going in it. Now, <clears throat> Carolyn was a 58-year-old patient of mine. She was divorced. She just got newly divorced. She hadn't had real sexual relations with her ex for a decade. You know, they did, she did, couldn't stand him. She was finally divorced. She went on Match.com. She's an attractive woman. She was getting winks left and right. She started to have sex again. But she came in with tears in the vagina at the entrance because she wasn't on estrogen. And she was, it was so painful. And we started with dilators. I said, look, I'm going to fix you. I'm going to fix your vagina. And by doing so, it literally, you know, twice a week for 30 minutes, we had small dilators that slowly got bigger. And then she had, you know, bigger uh, size that was more similar to her new boyfriend's penis. And she could resume uh, penetration and enjoy it again. But it took some homework, 10 years of not having anything inside the vagina. Well, yeah, it's going to shrink. It's going to collapse. But you can bring life back to that. So it's, you know, using dilators is, is it's a much newer conversation. I'm, I'm glad pe- the medical community is starting to write more about it. I have dilators. I give them to patients. I go through it. I show them how to use them. And it's really helpful. I have a quick question about um, insurance covering these kinds of things, whether it's hormone replacement therapy or um, dilators or any kind of treatment. Is there a problem that you've run into or will you know of the in- industry-wide? Well, hormones, the, the, your insurance will cover hormones. They, they may be the generic versions, but some are okay. That's okay. Generics c- really can be fine. They don't tend to cover compounded bioidenticals. And, and I do also prescribe those, just so you know, but I make sure that women understand the risk. That's all. You can use them safely, but no, it's not really any safer. Um, Insurance doesn't, you know, things like dilators or extra virgin coconut oil or vibrators, which I think are important for sexual health, they should, but again, it's a broken, greedy system. I am, for some fascinating reason, still in perimenopause. I'm 56. But I get, I have like arthritic pain, and I wondered if that is a symptom. Yes, yes, that's a great question. Joint pain is a less common um, symptom of menopause. One of the things I did want to address today that uh, was one of your questions, and I think it was a really good one, was what's discomfort versus disease? And um, what's so important about that is there are uh, are disease processes like thyroid, for example. When I check a woman's hormones in ovaries, their FSH and estradiol, which are the two markers for menopause or perimenopause, I also check thyroid because those are... All the symptoms we talked about, except you know the vaginal ones, can happen from thyroid dysfunction. That affects many women, about 25%. So it's very important that your doctor um, checks that. Some women that was having bloating, I mean, make sure you're getting your colonoscopies at age 50 
also important. Heart palpitations, I am a big a proponent of women in heart disease. One of three women will die of heart disease. I'm excited that you're going to be talking about it. It's such an important conversation. Palpitations, I will send my patient to a cardiologist to be checked. I think it's very important. There's no great screening test for heart disease, but uh, I just wanted to make sure we talked about that and getting your colonoscopy for bloating and so on. I want to make sure you're getting your levels checked at 57. Uh, bleeding, you know, if you have any irregular bleeding, an ultrasound's very important to make sure you don't have any precancer cells in your uterus. I actually went into menopause late to 57. Um, I stopped 51, I was stopped buying tampons thinking I'm done, I'm done. And every month I'd have to buy a new box. But you know, it's, yeah. Tests, you mentioned tests. My doctor said she doesn't trust blood tests because they change so much. And I was like, but I need my levels. And she's like, no, nah, how do you feel today? Yeah, yeah. So it is a really good question. So what she's referring to is once you've been diagnosed, so if you were diagnosed at 48, your FSH was usually above 25, it's over that number, you're usually in menopause and no period for a year. So it doesn't do any good to check your saliva for estrogen or check levels once you've been diagnosed. If doctors are doing that, you should change doctors because it's not right. It doesn't, it's not important. So she is right. So I was done with my period for over a year and then my daughter got her period and then I started having periods again. No. What's that about? Yeah. Well, it's funny. They've done a lot of studies with, you know, when you are synch synchronizing your period with your roommate. Um, so they did have done some great studies showing there is no correlation. But we know that's not true, and I think medical science doesn't always show these phenomenons because I know in my sorority, everyone was menstruating together. So there's some truth to it. That, though, in your case, I would make sure you get a pelvic ultrasound to look at your lining of your uterus to make sure there isn't any other reason. Good. Well, that was just, that was a mother-daughter moment. How does menopause affect cystitis? If you have it, or then it becomes Interstic interstitial it, yeah, cystitis. No, that's and what is the treatment? I think it's really yeah. prolific. Yep. I actually address this issue in my off my next book uh, called The Off-Track V. So a lot of women have burning with urination, frequency of urination, pelvic pressure, and you're like, ah, oh, it must be a bladder infection. You go to your doctor, or you call your doctor, and like, hey, I need my prescription of Macrobid. You either get it over the phone, or you go in and drop off your urine, but your urine culture is negative. And this may happen once or twice. And when it happens once or twice, you have all the mar earmarks of a UTI, burning, pressure, frequency, but your urine culture is negative. Now it's time to see a urologist. So interstitial cystitis is also a condition that many women get also not diagnosed enough. And it's a, there's no antibiotic treatment at all. The urologist will look into your bladder, they see certain inflammation, because again, estrogen is so important to the bladder as well as the vagina. So as this is progressing with menopause, the, the uh, bladder is also held hostage. So uh, there are treatments and there's workups for women that have those symptoms, but that's why it's so important if you have symptoms of a UTI to drop off a culture somewhere at your doctor's office at a lab to make sure it's truly a, a 
you know, UTI with bacteria. You've spoken a lot about vaginal atrophy and the, the physical kind of way to deal with, with uncomfortable sex, but you haven't really spoken about what helps best with for libido, loss of libido. libido yeah. Well, it's a great question and it's a harder issue sometimes because it's, you know, with menopause, your sex hormones, testosterone goes down along with estrogen, you know, and because sex is very mental, you have to st first feel really good about how you're feeling with yourself, with your body, with you know everything about your emotional health and physical health. I think that does help. I do think pain, if you know sex is gonna be uncomfortable or you know it's gonna be harder to have an orgasm, I think there's things we can do about that. Because you're, then you're not, you're more interested to participating. And that's why I speak a lot about vaginal dryness and vaginal health because that's one thing that a lot of women, they don't really want to have sex because it's going to be painful. Or it's going to be harder to have an orgasm. That's why, that's why we use the vibrators because I think they really help women. You know, if you think about 50% of women fake orgasm with, with their partners with vaginal penetration all the time. Right? I mean, you want to get over with. You're like, okay, this is uncomfortable. But if you bring it up with your partner, this is, this is going to help me. This is, you know, hormonally... I'm having a hard time, and you have to talk about it. You just have to. And often they enjoy when you bring new things into the bedroom. So vibrators are great. And I think it's important to um, find good ones. There's better ones than others. You know, ones that are, are more, more uh, softer to the tissue on the outside, you know, where the clitoris area is. And, and I, have in my, I have a chapter called The Bashful V. And I talk about the, the vibrator that I, now I have in my office. I used to just, you can get it on Amazon, 49, you know, $50 prime, you get it the next day. Now I just, I have them in my office and sell them. It's easier. My question was about the dilators. And also, um, I've heard something about um, that people um, have used, I think they're jade eggs yeah. to tone yeah. the, um, the the vagina yep. and you, how yep. successful are they? So, so well, the jaded egg, you know, Goop and Gwyneth Paltrow came up with that. You know, basically that's just to help identify your pelvic floor muscles. Um, they found though that they're really porous and, and they increase your risk of bacterial infections. So, and yeast infections. I mean, the whole point of anything you put in there to hold is to do your Kegel exercises. So, I'm gonna tell you how to do it. You start to pee, you stop your flow for three seconds, then release, let the flow continue, stop your flow again for three seconds. And that's, that's flexing your pelvic floor. That's the holy grail to help with loss of urine. It's great with orgasms, great with penetration, you know, having sex, it's really helpful when you're squeezing your pelvic floor. You ideally want to do 50 reps. Well, you do sort of 10 at a time, but you hold it for three seconds. I'm, I'm doing them now. It really helps. So it, it, that is really one of the most important things you can do to help with loss of urine. I'm like an emotional, at times compulsive feeler, speaker person. How will I know when it, I'm, I'm actually crazy? So you might have the hot flash... Uh, may not be the emotional side for you, Meredith. You might, you might have more of sort of that electric, intense, four-minute hot flash that everybody knows. It's so, it's so unique. 
and it's shocking. And it's painful almost, the heat. And it's really chest up. And the sweating, I mean, it's pretty intense. So that, you'll probably get one of those types of symptoms. Awesome. Good times. So if we had done this in a room between you and me, just talked, we would never have had the content that we created together today. So I want to thank you guys so much. The Pause Pod Less and the Pause Podcasts are hosted by Deborah Pardes and co-produced by Alicia Sedwick and Deborah Pardes. Special thanks to DrWise.com, our sponsor. And thanks also to Voila Vents, Fiftiness, Artists for Literacy, Zoom, Andre Paxton, Philip Christensen, Kendall Dill, and all the volunteers who make these pod blasts possible. And thanks for subscribing and listening to Pause Podcast. It pretty much reflects what happens in our live shows, but if you really want to experience one of our pod blasts, come to our next recording. Visit pausepodcast.com for details. And we'd love to come to your city or town, so if you become a Pause Partner, invite us. We'll come. Contact us. Thanks so much. And remember, take a pause for health.